Hello, welcome to Catholic in America. I'm Father Michael Nixon, and we're so blessed to be joined today by Dr. Holly Ordway, who's the Fellow of Faith and Culture at the Word on Fire Institute, the Cardinal Francis George Fellow of Faith and Culture at the Word on Fire Institute. And uh, she's also a visiting professor of apologetics at Houston Baptist University. And it's so great for you to, uh, to be joined us today on Catholic in America. Oh, my pleasure. Well, you wear a lot of hats. You do a lot of different things, uh, both as, as a visiting professor and also uh, your work with Word on Fire and as, as uh, an author as well. So within all that, within all the different things that you do, what do you think would be the most surprising for you as a young person, having grown up in a non-religious household, um, that today that you are a visiting professor at a Baptist university or that you work for Word on Fire, a Catholic ministry, or that you've written a book about J.R.R. Tolkien? Which of those three would surprise you the most? Well, I think being a Christian at all would have surprised me because I I grew up in a completely non-Christian home and I am indeed an adult convert to the faith. So I think the idea of being working for Word on Fire or being at a Baptist university would have equally blown my mind. Um, And I think sort of in a muddled way blown my mind because at the time I I don't think I would have really known much of a difference between what's a Baptist, what's a Catholic, they're all these crazy Christians. But Tolkien has been somebody I've been engaging with since I was a girl, and in fact, I um, have been thinking seriously about his literary critical work since I was a teenager. So that part, I would have thought, oh, that's cool. But the Catholic part would have just really surprised me. So God is, he's mysterious in the ways that he works, mysterious and delightful. Excellent. Excellent. The um, So yeah, so, so when did you first discover Tolkien? We'll talk about when you first discovered Jesus too, because I think that's that's <laughs> that's really important. But when, when did you first discover Tolkien and what 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 attracted you to his, his writing and to his work? Well, the funny thing is I actually can't remember when I first read The Lord of the Rings because I read both The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit as a, as a little girl. So I can only remember rereading them, um, but not necessarily the first, the first encounter of it. So I, I encountered them pretty early on. I probably was between like, I'm going to say seven and seven to nine years old is, is going to be my guess. And they became kind of part of my imaginative sort of furniture. Uh, I just love these books. Um, alongside the Chronicles of Narnia, those I also encountered around that time and was just captivated. And they became just real favorites for me. And I kept reading them and rereading them, um, expanded into lots of their fantasy and, and folk tales and, and whatnot, um, you know, as I, as I was growing older. And then when I was a teenager, um, I picked up a battered copy of this anthology called The Tolkien Reader um, at a, like a yard sale, 25 cents, I think it was. Best 25 cents I've ever spent because that book had the essay on fairy stories in it. And that totally opened my mind um, for really two interesting reasons. And it kind of ties into your first question, because on the one hand, that was my first exposure to literary criticism. Because in, like in my high school classes, there was all the, like, you know, hunt the symbol. I'm like, oh, please kill me now. And I'm like, I love what I was reading, but this it, I, this this approach to it seems so dead and, and, and depressing. But here was Tolkien, who was doing this exploration of what is fantasy? How does it work? And it was exciting and it was um, insightful. And it made me want to read more fantasy maybe want to read more literature rather than squelching it. So that was, I, I now in hindsight, you know, 30 odd years later can see that was my first encounter with what I think literary criticism ought to be something that 
gives you greater appreciation for what you're reading and a greater depth of engagement. And so I think it's fair to say that that encounter, you know, when I was about 14 with um, that essay made me a literary critic. Hmm. But interestingly, in the epilogue to On Fairy Stories, there's also what is effectively a proclamation of the gospel because he talks about the resurrection as being the, the, the eucatastrophe, the happy ending of the story of the of the incarnation and how this is a story that, you know, is the best of all fairy stories and it really happened in history. Mm. And I remember that that passage just strangely moved me. And I say strangely because I had really as little understanding of Christianity as it is possible to have in the 21st century. I really, well, that was, you know, 20th century, um, I really didn't grasp what it was about, but I was strangely moved and that stuck with me. Um, and that passage continued to move me. I did my PhD dissertation on fantasy, worked a lot with that essay. I was an atheist at the time and yet that passage still sort of spoke to me in an in a interesting way. And to this day, you know, I, I reread that passage and I'm just still moved by it. And that, I think it's fair to say that that's the place where I first really heard the gospel was in his essay on fairy stories, not even knowing what I was encountering. Amazing. So what, what difference then, because so many people have, have you know, uh, they grew up in a Christian home or some sort of you know, uh, quasi-religious upbringing, and the fact that you did not for yourself, that your first exposure to the gospel in a sense was through, um, was through C.S. Lewis, what was through, uh, you know, um, whether, whether you knew it or not, you know, uh, through, through uh, the Chronicles of Narnia and, and through uh, Tolkien, obviously, um, you know, he, he, he's, he's so Catholic throughout his, his, his mind and imagination, but then that explicit kind of proclamation of, of the gospel at the end of um, On Fairy Stories. So what, what difference does that make for you as, as someone who, who's, you first heard the gospel in and through fantasy and then through uh, these amazing works of fantasy from Lewis and Tolkien? Well, really, it has, it has shaped my entire career as a as an evangelist, really, um, because it was, you know, the, the through fantasy was really the, the first and deepest way that I engaged with these truths. And I didn't <laughs> I must have been the one kid in America who didn't know that Aslan was Jesus. I really didn't. <laughs> I genuinely did not understand that. And this is interesting because The Voyage of the Dawn Treader was and is my favorite of the series. I mean, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is the first and most in a way, the best. It has to be. But Don Treader, I just love the Don Treader. But the oh, scene yeah. at I, the end. I knew there was a kindred spirit going on because I'm, I'm a Don Treader guy myself as far as, far as yeah, my, my, my favorite. <laughs> Excellent. But that scene at the end where there, where Aslan becomes a lamb and they eat fish, I was baffled. I had zero idea what was going on. But I thought, wow, well, okay, well, that's that's weird. That's interesting. Did not know until I kid you not, I was in my twenties and I finally cottoned on to it. And I went through a phase of being very angry with CS Lewis. How dare he be one of those Christians? I don't like Christians. And I had to kind of get over that, but I love his books. Okay. Okay. So fantasy had the first impact. Um, but then as I did my undergraduate work in, in English, English literature, I started encountering more and more poets who were also Christians. Um, Gerard Manley Hopkins became a hugely important figure for me, Catholic poet, 
I did not understand what I was reading, <laughs> but it was wonderful. Um, and so I had all these these sort of exposures to Christian literature that were, I think, feeding my imagination in a in a Christian way when my intellect was saying, no, that's nonsense. But this was so important because it gave me the context eventually to want to ask the questions. Because I got to the point, I had my PhD, I was doing my first teaching, and I'm teaching this literature. And again, I'm teaching these great Christian poets, and I still love them, although I disagree with them. And finally, I got to the point of just saying, you know, Tolkien and Lewis and John Donne and George Manley Hopkins and T.S. Eliot and yada, 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 all these authors are Christians and they are obviously not complete idiots because you can't write something like the Lord of the Rings or Hopkins' sonnets and be a complete nincompoop. So what's going on here? And so it brought me to the point of saying, I want to understand what they believed so that I can understand their work better and with a sense of respect. I had no intention of becoming a Christian. I did not want to become a Christian. I had no idea that it was going to happen, but I was able to enter into it genuinely wanting to know what did they mean by God? What did they mean by Christianity? And that open-mindedness was what allowed me to encounter, when I started actually looking into this, the realization, oh my word, this is actually true. This is real. Um, God exists. Mm. This makes sense of the world. This makes sense of all the things that I've not been able to make sense of. Why do I, you know, why do I feel that I ought to be a good person? You know, where did that come from? You know, that kind of thing. And, you know, this is actually a historical event. Christ really did live and die and was raised again. And that, you know, I, I realized, well, if I'm going to be intellectually consistent, then I need to become a Christian. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> But I think that's that's something that has then developed into my own work, um, you know, first in teaching cultural apologetics at HBU, um, and now as the fellow of faith and culture at the Water and Fire Institute, because I could have encountered and did encounter arguments about God and, and preaching about, you know, Jesus when I was an unbeliever. And it was like water off a duck's back because I wasn't ready to consider it. But I, but I was being prepared. There was that, that, you know, the preparation, the evangelical preparation for it that made me interested. And what has become sort of the foundation of my work made it meaningful, made concepts like good and evil and virtue meaningful, not just abstract words. So then I was ready to engage with them. And I think that's the preeminent challenge of, of our age is to is to create meaning for these ideas because when i encountered you know god as the source of all of all morality i already had a robust sense of goodness and evil where did that come from in part from my own conscience but in a lot because my conscience had been formed by things like frodo you know self-sacrificially mm. carrying the ring you know to mordor um had been formed by aslan had been formed by this great literature so I had a real sense that goodness was real and mattered. Where did it come from? How can I find it? So I think literature and the imagination is, I mean, it certainly was what brought me to the faith and 
And I think we can make so much good use of it to help others to do the same. I, w- I love that. that so you, you're a professor of apologetics, which for those that don't know, it's, it's, it's the fancy term for, for, you know, how to defend your faith, how, how to, how to have a, give a reasonable defense of, of the faith of what we believe as Christians. Maybe one of the, the most popular uh, across denominational lines work of apologetics of, of the 20th century is Mere Christianity um, um, from, from C.S. Lewis. But, but I think maybe one of the things that's oftentimes missing in modern apologetics is, is what, what, you, um, what you swim in, which is, is, is the work of imagination and literature and, and even fantasy as, as, as a genre. So, so how, how often is that something that, that you're finding like that you, you wish more people were doing this, were engaging with the, uh, with the imagina- imagination and with uh, works of fantasy in, in sharing the truths of the faith or, or bringing those in, into the conversation? Well, I think it is hugely important. Um, and I'm really pleased to say that over the last about 10 years, there's been a real growth in that. Because mm. when I started doing this, you know, working in imaginative and literary politics about 10 years ago, I was one of very few people doing that. Um, you know, Malcolm Gait is one of the early ones. Uh, he's an Anglican um, literary critic, poet, um, um, my, uh, my friend and colleague, Michael Ward, um, who's now Catholic, you know, working with his exposition in Narnia with Plan and Narnia, um, and his work in the imagine, imagination and apologetics. But I could, you know, count in one hand, the people who are doing this. Um, but now 10 years on, especially after, you know, spending eight years developing our cultural apologetics program at HBU, which is about engaging with the culture. And then I think, you know, seeing also what Word on Fire has been doing for the last 10 years about engaging with the culture, I'm really seeing that there's more and more people, both Protestant and Catholic, who are seeing, oh, this is important. We should do this. We should engage with it. And I'm so encouraged by this because it's absolutely essential. You know, we've got all these great philosophical arguments. We've got this, you know, robust theology. We've got convincing ways to present the faith. And yet, are we seeing a renaissance, you know, of, of faith in, in America, in the West? No, we're not. It's not enough to have the intellectual arguments if people aren't able to access them. And I say not able because it's not just a question of people not listening. Because people are really hungry for meaning. I mean, this is something I've seen with my work with the students. Um, they are starving for meaning. They are hungry. They are lost, and they know it, but they don't. They don't know how to access this. And so, when the faith is presented to them as yet one more set of rules, or as yet one more lifestyle option, but this one just slightly better than the others, or even just the terms we use to talk about the faith, they're simply not accessible to people. And I'll give one example that I, I use this in my book, Apologetics and the Christian Imagination. We talk about wanting to, for instance, avoid sin. Well, the word sin does not mean what we think it means to the people we're talking to. And I challenge you know, your, your audience to, to do this. Pay attention that when you go into the grocery store or in, when you go into a restaurant and see how many times you'll see something like sinfully delicious chocolate cake. You know, um, decadently indulgent, um, you know, that sort of thing. And what it seems at first trivial, sinfully delicious, haha. But but think about it. If we actually had a correct meaning for sin, we would say, yuck. Like, why would I want that? It would be like saying maggoty, wormy chocolate cake. <laughs> we wouldn't want to eat it. It wouldn't be a selling point. 
the word sin has become a word that means, oh, delicious, fun, exciting stuff that's a little bit dicey, a little bit risque. Those boring Catholics don't want you to do that. It has become effectively a positive term. Hmm. So given that, and that's not something that you can just turn off at the, you know, the snap of a finger. That's what the word means in our culture. Um, you know, and so we become, it's become normalized to us. So of course we talk about, you know, well, cohabitation before marriage is a sin. What does that even mean to the young people who we're talking to? It means cohabitation is a fun thing to do, mm. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. So we have to really think about our language. The concept is the same, but how do we communicate it? And we have to think about what do our words mean and what is the imaginative content carried by them? And how do we find ways to present the real content that really connects? So so for Tolkien in particular, as someone who who obviously understood and and really maintained the power of language and as as this as this, you know, this dynamic force had such a respect for it. Um, created his own languages, re uh, really. Um, uh, how much was, uh, and then he's also engaged, as as you 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 bring to the fore, uh, with modern literature and society, and and not as some sort of luddite where he didn't engage with it at all, or just sort of reject it, or just pine for the days of the days of yore. Um, how how does that begin to, to set maybe a standard for us of how we can? understand that that culture has shifted and that the meaning of words has shifted out from underneath our feet. Um, and so we need to take that that shift seriously and not just to go along with it, but the, so that we can begin to bring the light of even of the gospel to in, in, in this modern context. Well, that's that's such a great question. And that really gets into the heart of one of the discoveries I made in researching Tolkien's modern reading. Um, this book took me 10 years to write, um, in part because I had a lot of research to do to discover what he had read, but also because partway through I realized I and most of the rest of the world have always thought of him as being primarily just a medievalist. He loved the past, mm -hmm. and that's where he wanted to live. He's fundamentally nostalgic, and I didn't have a problem with that. I mean, I just loved him, loved his works. I'm like, okay, he's a, he's a medievalist. He loves the Middle Ages. Yay, so do I. But then I realized, you know, this is a bit puzzling because his work, The Lord of the Rings, speaks so powerfully to the modern imagination. I mean, it speaks directly to all of our 20th and 21st century issues and anxieties. And, and I thought, how could somebody who was only focused on the past, who only drew on the work of, you know, Beowulf and the, and the sagas, that's clearly a huge influence. Is it the only thing he was working with? And the answer is no. It turns out that he was extremely widely read in his contemporary literature. You know, he read a lot of modern literature in a hugely diverse range, including a lot of non-Christian writers, including some very vehemently atheist writers. Mm. And one of the things that I noticed is that he has a very discerning ability to engage. He has a confident faith. He knows his faith. He's a devout Catholic. And so he's able, for instance, to read someone like E.R. Edison, a science fiction writer who is a, basically a, a pagan pantheist, and say, well, his philosophy is evil. He calls the philosophy evil, but he recognizes that he has a great power of world building and storytelling. So he's able to very confidently engage because he knows what he believes and he can venture out into these different territories. Um, 
and that's one thing I think we can observe as Catholics. Um, mm. But the other thing is that because he is engaging with contemporary literature, I mean, he was reading Finnegan's Wake. He was he was reading modernist stuff, all sorts of things. He didn't necessarily like or approve of it all. Definitely not. Although he liked a lot more of it than you might think. But he was engaged with it. And that meant that he had his finger on the pulse. He knew what were the kind of cultural issues. Um, another thing I discovered is that he was actually very update in the news. He took three newspapers. He was always interested in, in international news. He kept up to date in these things. So he knew what was going on in the world. And this becomes part of what he's reflecting on. And he's deeply grounded in medieval literature and ancient literature. So he's got his feet on you know, sort of solid ground, and he's also engaging with this modern literature. So I think that all of these things brought together in his you know, deeply Catholic imagination meant that he could discern the spirit of the age, but not go with it, mm. but rather challenge it but do it in a way that's fresh because Lord of the Rings is not just a pastiche of, of medieval stuff. I trust me. I read William Morris. That's pastiche. Tolkien is actually writing a, a novel. Um, I mean, he didn't actually call it that, but it, it functionally is because we've got well-rounded characters, which we do um, interesting psychology, some postmodern literary techniques. He's got a real sophistication of technique that sometimes people don't notice because they just see what they expect to see. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. very, very sophisticated novelistic techniques going on here. And consider, for instance, what he does with the ring. Because in folklore, magic rings are things that you want. You go on quest to find mm -hmm. them and keep them and get them. It's a huge reversal. The whole point of the Lord of the Rings is the quest to throw away the magic ring. Um, and it's the ring, it's of power what is the one thing that the modern world is most in love with? Power, personal power, the ability to say, I will do this. He has this image, which is drawn from folklore and ancient medieval literature, you know, the magic ring, but he transforms it into the most potent symbol possible of our modern dilemma. And has our, has our characters striving at great personal cost to let go of it? Hmm. I mean, that's yeah. the kind of thing that you do when you've engaged with modern culture, but not gone with it. And I think, too, it, it maybe is, is one of the best examples of, of the struggle of temptation in a sense that there's something um, that there's something greater than us that's calling us beyond what we're engaging with right now, which is, which is evil. It's not just that good and evil are, are equal here, that there's something so much greater than that. Um, we struggle with evil, but, but the good is, is, is greater than, cause you know, God doesn't show up, you know, in, in the last chapter of the Lord of the Rings saying it was me all along, but in a sense, every page of it is soaked in this, this Christian biblical worldview in a sense. And I think that that's one of those things that, very few artists or, or writers nowadays, um, Catholics, seem to to possess that that sort of to be able to keep all this intention, which maybe is, is one of the great you know, the brilliance of Tolkien is that he's able to um, to without like a heavy handed like you know this is actually about Jesus. Uh, he's he's able to 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 paint a whole narrative, a story with characters that that are are flawed and aren't perfect, um, but in a sense that they're they're striving towards something because because uh, 
his goodness, uh, you know, God is real. Yeah, it matters. You know, we, we know that it, it Frodo's self-sacrifice is a good thing. We that, That's completely clear. And he, he's broken. And this is one of the really profound things about The Lord of the Rings. And I think this comes from Tolkien's lived experience and his sort of spiritual maturity. Because Frodo is broken mm-hmm. on his quest. He does not get a happy ending. Um, he goes home. He goes to the Shire. And he's not healed. He asks eventually to go, you know, to the West. He, you know, as as he says, the Shire has been saved, but not for me. Mm. It's so sad because Tolkien has such a confidence in the ultimate reality of goodness that the story has a happy ending, ultimately, that he's able to look squarely at the fact that our healing may not be in this life. Um, and that's a depth of vision that only comes from a real, I think, depth of personal holiness and to consider the way, too, that because he's so deeply convinced that good, you know, is the winner in the end, it's not a dualistic world, he's able to present the insidious effect of evil in a very convincing way. Because evil is not just some, you know, baddie. Like, okay, there's Sauron. He's obviously a bad figure. But look at the way we see the ring corrupting the will of people we admire. I mean, Boromir is an admirable figure. And, you know, he's corrupted by a desire to use the ring for good to, to save Minas Tirith. Um, and we see, for instance, Denethor, who could have been, you know, a great figure, you know, the steward leading his people. Mm. And he has gradually been, had his will sapped. He's been looking into the Palantir. He's been seeing the images that Sauron has been feeding him of partial truths of seeing the armies and not, you know, and, and seeing the devastation, but not seeing the context. Cause you know, Sauron is the original master of propaganda. You know, he's seeing these images and he despairs. And because of that despair, he is, is not only unwilling to act to, to do the right thing, but he, he actively seeks to destroy himself and his son. And that, I mean, Denethor is a powerful image of how somebody with great strengths and good intentions can become little by little weakened by by sin, by temptation. In this case, not temptation so much to external power or glory, but to his own despair and his own pride, just fed by these images. Um, and you know, in a way, it's very prescient. You know, we should be thankful thinking about Tolkien. Kind of says something about social media here. How many yeah. of us are looking into glowing orbs <laughs> and, and despairing? Right. Absolutely. Uh, you know, actually, even as you were saying that, that was that was kind of just hitting home with me that Denethor, um, who, yeah, is, is, is again, for all intents and purposes, one of the good guys, you know, one, one, one of the, one of someone who's, who's trying to do the right thing and trying to fight against evil, but because he's, he's seeing the world through, you know, through this particular lens that's twisted and manipulated by the enemy, that in a sense, his whole, all the good intentions that he has, um, just, just leads towards destruction, self-destruction, destruction of, of, of those that he loves. Yeah. Which if you want a more, uh, just kind of insightful analysis of, of social media before social media existed. Um, uh, and and I, I think it just, just goes to show again, Tolkien that his understanding of humanity was so um, profound, but rooted in his understanding of, of, of hope and, and, and grace. Um, so, so the, the aspects of, of Tolkien's life that, that you, 
um, you touch on and kind of like how it unfolded in, in a career led him, him becoming famous, which is which is always kind of kind of interesting where every single one of his lines quoted and, you know, hyperbolic lines about literature, about other people that can get quoted or maybe blown out of proportion. Um, what aspects of his life do you think really helped him to uh, to have such a, a Catholic small fee, uh, small C uh, universal uh, appreciation for literature and uh, that really kind of, you know, uh, spills over into to everything that he would write. Well, I think, you know, he he consistently engaged through his whole life with literature in the context of community. Um, you know, he his mother, Mabel, you know, encouraged him to read at an early age and you know, read to him and taught him to read. You know, he's he's um, basically raised by the Oratorian Fathers um, in Birmingham after he's been orphaned. And they're a huge, you know, very literate people. Um, gets a great education at King Edward School where he's friends with um, other people and then ends up making the, the TCBS, this little club amongst, you know, fellow um, writers and, and would-be artists. Uh, of course, most of them are killed in the Great War. So that's his first taste of tragedy, you know, as an adult. Obviously, his very first taste of tragedy was, you know, losing both his parents, you know, as, as a boy. So, you know, and then he goes on and he becomes, you know, an Oxford professor and is, you know, engaged, you know, with literature in, in teaching it. But also in the context of community, he's with the Inklings, you know, that, that decades-long fellowship of, of these, these guys reading their work to each other and, and chatting and talking. And he also had loads of other friendships. And this, incidentally, was something I discovered in my research. People tend to think of him as, you know, being part of like a boys club because the Inklings were only men. And they tend to assume, like, therefore, Tolkien was, you know, just like that, he only had male friends. Quite the opposite. He had a number of female friends of fellow professors in the English faculty, and he actually co-founded a, a club um, called The Cave that had both women and men members um, of the faculty. And his correspondence, he has lots of correspondence with, you know, women, colleagues and students and, and you know, readers. So he had a, a really a wide-ranging set of friendships that we're also interested in reading and discussing. And I think this helped to bolster his just interest in and engagement with literature and with a wider culture because, you know, and of course he had a family, he had four children. And so he was, as he became a father, he's reading to them. He's interested in what he's going to be sharing with literature for them. So I think one of the things we can take away from Tolkien's life is that he was not just the lonely artist in his ivory tower penning his masterpiece by himself. He was in a community of friends, colleagues, um, family. And this is part and parcel of what made him great. It wasn't a distraction from his life, although he was always pressed for time, always, always, always pressed for time. Um, but it was actually part of this rich context that made him able to do that work. And I find that really encouraging and motivational that if I'm going to be doing my academic work and my writing in my own small way, I'm going to need to be in community and fellowship with other people because mm. we can't go it alone and we shouldn't even try. Yeah. And I, th I think, too, just in a sense, the, the, those relationships are so important for him and, and maybe just one of those things, too, that that in the modern context and, and even our our. our desire to evangelize, to share God with others, that if it's not coming out of a place of deep friendships, and in a sense, it's it's always, it's never going to, you know, we can be as, as persuasive, persuasive as possible, but if people, if people, are, we're not in a relationship of love, 
um, there's something missing. Maybe more, one of the great tragedies of this past year and a half too is is that just recognizing that those those interactions and conversations and and loving arguments and disagreements in a good way, in a sense, now all we know how to do is just just destroy one another with our arguments or, or lack thereof. Um, so just but being able to do that. So the Inklings are a great example of that. And 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 I want to uh, dive into a little bit. Again, we talked we talked briefly about C.S. Lewis. Um, so uh, just just about his uh, impact on on um, a, a kind of mutual enrichment of the two of them, particularly with the Chronicles of Narnia, because I think that that's such a, a great um, uh, work and that has been sometimes painted as something that that Tolkien was kind of dismissive of in his and uh, his, his 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 writings or his response. Yeah, I mean, that's that's such a great friendship um, and we owe so much to it because, you know, um, Tolkien himself said that um he would never have finished the Lord of the Rings if it hadn't been for Lewis's constant um, encouragement. And that over years, that encouragement was what enabled him just to keep going because he had, he had many friends and, you know, and, and connections, but he was very shy about sharing his work. And he said that for many years, Lewis was his only reader. Mm. And then from that place of constant, just encouragement and support, he was able then to finish the book and to and to write more. So that we, we owe a great debt to Lewis just for um, helping Tolkien to finish it. And also we see the influence going the other way as well, because when C.S. Lewis wrote his first um, you know, fictional work, major fictional work out of the Silent Planet, um, part of the what will become the Ransom Trilogy, uh, Tolkien actually helped to get it published. He read it in manuscript and he loved it. He thought it was wonderful. And he even wrote to his publisher and said, you should publish this book. It's so good. And, um, you know, was really encouraging and supportive of that. So we see a kind of a mutual, um, a mutual encouragement. Now, as you said, you know, people like to, to say, oh, you know, Tolkien hated Narnia. That, that has been going around for, for years now. Hmm. Um, and so that's one of the things I actually especially looked into. I thought to myself, you know, this Tolkien guy, he's, He's more complex than he seems in the surface. I wonder what he really thought about this. And it turns out that when you really dig into the sources, you find that it actually was not that big of a deal. Tolkien didn't care for the first bit of the line in which the wardrobe that, that he heard read to him. Um, he had some objections to um, Mr. Tumnus the Fawn and not unwarranted because from the little bit that he heard, he just heard about a little girl having, you know, a, a little, you know, breakfast, you know, meter, a tea, tea with uh, this fawn. And from his classical knowledge, he would have known that in classical literature, fawns are, shall we say, not safe companions for female people, especially, you know, young female people. Right. And he would have actually, he has, he has a daughter he, and he, he doesn't know what's going to happen. He's only hearing the first couple chapters. And I think he just thought, what on earth are you doing? Like, this is kind of risque. What? I don't like this. And if you only see that bit, you know, that's, that's, not, an, that's not an unreasonable reaction. Now, we know that Tolkien actually, I mean, that Lewis actually develops it in a, in a good way. Mm. Tumnus, you know, he doesn't have those intentions and he repents of his idea of kidnapping Lucy it all turns out fine in the book as a whole. Um, so that, but we can see why Tolkien might've been a little bit put off by that. And he said later on that he didn't, you know, he didn't particularly care for the way that, that Lewis had put, put the, the stories together. It just, it wasn't his taste. 
okay that's allowed yeah yeah <laughs> and that, that really is that really is it um and that has this has been overblown like the kind of game of telephone that it goes from person to person to person and by the time you get three you know biographers down he hated them he loathed them it damages friendship with lewis no it didn't um but in fact, there's a letter. That, that, that's that good for me to hear, by the way, because obviously I, I love both of them. And, and I think that that kind of uh, caricature of, 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 uh, of Tolkien and his attitude towards both Lewis and uh, Chronicles of Narnia, I think, I think is, is, is helpful for me. I'm like, OK, good. This, this, this seems uh, it's, it, it's a better story than what, what we maybe kind of been, been led to believe. And it, and it shows shows better light in both of them because they were both mature, thoughtful Christians who were good friends. It's really kind of ridiculous that 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 he would have broken his friendship with with Lewis because he didn't like the Chronicles of Narnia, um, and that wasn't the case. Um, you know, they as as time got on, they spent less time together, but they were also very busy men with you know families and you know all, all that. It's to be expected that as they got older, they didn't necessarily see as much of each other. Okay. But there's actually a letter that, that um, was not published in the letters, but turned up elsewhere, where Tolkien actually writes that he thought that the Chronicles of Narnia were deservedly very popular. And he had them on his shelves for his granddaughter to read when she came over. Um, so obviously, by the end of his life, he had come to a kind of a grudging appreciation to say, hey, they're not my kind of thing but they deserve their popularity and I'm happy if my granddaughter read them. I mean, that's, that's pretty good considering they weren't his taste and people can have different tastes. So there's not, there's no Narnia versus middle earth war. It's much more ordinary, <laughs> but much more consoling. I think to know that. I love that. And the fact too, that, that, uh, so the space trilogy of C.S. Lewis, that he bases the main character, um, Ransom, kind of loosely based uh, uh, the character named Ransom is, is a philologist and, and is based on Tolkien. And, and that to me is, is such an interesting, for those who have, you know, it's, it's much less popular in, in, uh, of, of a series than the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, but to me is, is powerful. I was happy to hear from, from, from uh, your insights that, that it seemed Paralandra was, uh, the, the, the middle book was, uh, was, was uh, Tolkien's favorite of the three, at least that we know of. But uh, but but you know, to me, is is um, such an interesting take on on science fiction in a sense. You know, it's kind of its own sort of brand of science fiction. And I wonder too if 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 Tolkien had ever desired to write in the in the, in, in in that sense of, of of something that could have been science fiction. I often think maybe Lord of the Rings, if it was set on Mars, would be science fiction. You you know that that and would would break new ground there. But uh, but it, it is interesting just th that relationship and that, that dynamic, even between fantasy and science fiction as well. Well, it's interesting because Tolkien, as I discovered in my research for Tolkien's modern reading, he loved science fiction. He yeah. read loads of it. He found it very interesting. And he felt that fantasy and science fiction were not in competition. They were they were legitimate modes of exploring this material. Um, and he, he thought it was good fun. And he did, in fact, try to write a science fiction story. Um, he had this little, you know, quote unquote wager um, with T.S. Lewis uh, or agreement that Lewis would write a space travel story and he would write a time travel story. And so Lewis writes the space travel story, which becomes Out of the Sun on Planet. And Tolkien starts to write the time travel story. Um, and the premise is that they wanted to see more of what they liked in science fiction. So they set out to write them. Mm. But Tolkien is Tolkien and he kind of gets tangled up in the plot threads and, and then languages come in and he never finished it. Um, 
So there's a there's an unfinished story called The Lost Road. Um, it involves Atlantis. It's it's a cool idea, but he, he never ended up finishing it. But at least it shows us that he was interested in writing science fiction, um, even if he didn't quite get that into gear, um, unlike his his, uh, his other work. Yeah, I, w- I was fascinated to hear that that he enjoyed uh, uh, the John Carpenter books, Burroughs and and H. G. Wells, and 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 just again a lot of things that that in my mind that that he would not have been uh, he would not been have been a fan of, and even if he disagrees with some of the philosophy, maybe it just it, it is fascinating to see that uh, to see his his consumption of those things, and even a, an author that he's like I'm not a big fan of this particular author, but 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 as as, as you point out, you know. He also read, you know, I think Sayers, I think it was that he, that he had read like, you know, nine or 10 of her, of her, her, her books, you know, so that, that's, that's pretty good. If you're going to disagree with someone to actually say that, that, uh, that I've, I've actually consumed the, the work, I've actually, actually read it and, and appreciated and been able to put it in its, in its proper context. Yeah, that's, that's a particularly hilarious example of his um, tendency towards hyperbole, because um, it's uh, Dorothy Sayers wrote a whole series of mystery novels with Lord Peter Whimsey. And there's a very famous quote where he basically just dismisses, oh, this is just terrible. Um, I can't stand, I can't stand this Harriet Vane character she brings in. It's just terrible. But he he comments that he had read all of the up until that point, which means that he had read, like you said, about nine or ten of the Lord Peter mysteries. Like, so he make he doesn't care for the very last couple of them where the romance element comes in. I think he just preferred puzzle mysteries. He was a great fan of Agatha Christie, for instance. Mm. I think he just preferred the cerebral puzzle as opposed to Sayers' later shift into sort of the personal interaction between Lord Peter and, and Harriet Vane. But Tolkien has this playful streak, and he's writing to his son Christopher, and for all we know, this was like an in-joke. So he's totally going overboard. Oh, this is terrible. I hate it. But he does that. He just playfully overstates lots of things. Um, and once you kind of get a sense of his personality, that he had this this sort of boisterous personality, you, you start to understand better, okay, I need to see the context. Like there's a classic example that he, he did an interview um, where someone, that they, the interviewers asked him, what did he think about being having Lord of the Rings compared to Dante's Divine Comedy? <clears throat> and he just loses it. He's like, I can't stand Dante, that small-minded little nobody. I wouldn't even want to be compared to him. The funny thing is that he evidently realized, you know, the next day would have whatever. Hmm. Yeah, I kind of, I kind of went over the top because, in fact, he he was a perfectly, you know, fond of Dante. He was a member of the Oxford Dante Society. He wrote a paper on Dante that he delivered at the society. So he writes, he writes a letter to these interviewers and says, um. Let me clarify. Actually, I have great respect for Dante. He's a supreme poet. Right. <laughs> he backs off from it. And of course, the thing was, is that he got a little, I think, flustered by being compared to the supreme poet. Because hmm. um, he doesn't feel that's, that, that for an Englishman, especially you know, his temperament, that, that's just too much. That's, that's gushing. He can't stand gushing. So he, he just you know, lets loose. Um, and he lets loose some poor Dante. But of course, that was just hyperbole. That was just him saying, don't compare me to Dante. I'm not, you know, <laughs> no. And so he has to back off. But I just love that we actually have the, the text evidence of him writing back to them and saying, well, actually, Dante is a supreme poet. Right. <laughs> <I'm, oops. Right. laughs> the, um, so looking at this kind of the, the, the landscape of, of, of literature, uh, particularly in you know, fantasy literature, science fiction, who uh, who are you a fan of uh, these days? Who who are who are some writers 
that are writing today in our own modern context. I think your, your doctoral work went up to 1990s. So, you know, you know, there's some stuff's been written since then um, or, or even, you know, uh, within that time frame. Um, but that you that you feel is doing a, a good job of continuing because in a sense, if you read fantasy, um, which I'm a, I'm a big uh, fan of, uh, of fantasy as, as a genre, that this, everyone's trying to do what Tolkien did, you know, so, so everyone's trying to, to capture that in some way or, or, or is kind of judged against that, I, I should say, um, for, for better or for worse. But yeah, who, who are some, some writers or some, some, some tendencies that you're seeing within literature that, that are exciting for you? Yes, this is a, a great question and a tough question because the fantasy genre has been so shaped by Tolkien that it's almost, it's, it's ironically, I think, been hurt by Tolkien because there's been so much at imitating him that people kind of have yet to break out of the, the you know, the orbit, so to speak. Um, but I do, I do see there's some, there's some interesting things going on. Um, one that I've read recently that I thought was really interesting was um, Susanna Clarke's Piranesi, uh, which is a sort of magical, realistic, fantasy-ish kind of thing. Um, and I won't say too much because you kind of have to read it for yourself and experience it. And I think that very effective, very well written, very thought provoking, um, very original and not derivative. There are no like, honestly, I, I find it very difficult these days to read things with elves and dwarves and things like the little derivative flag goes up so quickly that mm. I almost have an allergic reaction. That's very different. Another author that I think is underrated is actually a Catholic um, science fiction author called um, Tim Powers, who's been writing for decades. Okay. Um, and okay. he's done some fascinating stuff with like time travel. He has got a book, The Anubis Gates. Um, he does a lot of sort of historical fantasy where he's imagining basically like um, his book, The Strength of Her Regard, is sort of looking at the life of Shelley and Byron, the, the you know the, the romantic poets. What if we could explain a lot of what they did by the fact that they were involved with vampires? Um, and he just kind of works with it, and it's it's just really fun. But interestingly, he has a couple of new ones um, that have come out in the last couple of years. Um, I think it's like the Alternate Root series that's set in contemporary California and has these characters, you know, dealing with strange things happening. And he's really working in a serious Catholicism into these stories, more so even than in his, his earlier books. His earlier books have, I think, a strong kind of underlying ethos of good and evil, uh, you know, support, respect for life. Um, and it becomes, I think, a, it's more clear, I think, even in some of these later ones. And I think it's really interesting because he has these characters who are Catholic or maybe Catholic or, you know, borderline. And he's doing it in a way that's accessible and it doesn't take over the story, but it's definitely part of the overall ethos that this is a world that's consistent with the way we as Catholics understand the world to be. And he's writing for mainstream science fiction audience. Um, and he has a, 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 a um, short story collection called, um, oh, it's got purgatory in the title. Now, <clears throat> now I'm blanking on the title. Um, but this short story collection is, has many stories that are very directly Catholic in kind of their engagement. Mm -hmm. And so I think Tim Powers is somebody who is kind of underrated, but is a, a really strong storyteller who is just sort of quietly getting on with the business of, of being a Catholic telling these stories. Now I'm, I'm waiting to see if you're actually going to, uh, to, to, uh, to, to dive into these waters as well. Cause I caught, there's several moments throughout the book and, 
in in a sense painting the picture of it. I'm like, oh, oh, she's she obviously you know knows her stuff and 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 you know the research and everything else. But as far as like you know the the, the talent to be able to uh, to uh, paint a narrative or, or or something like that, I don't know if that's something that that you're you you've worked on before or or, or, or you uh, might might have for us sometime in the future coming out with your own. Uh, fantasy short stories or, or, or long form or anything else? Well, I, I am, in fact, not a fiction writer. Um, I have tried and I have d- decided that that's not my that's not my form. Um, so in, in prose, my my mode is nonfiction, but I am a poet. Um, I'm a published poet. And so I at some point in the future, we may be seeing some some more of my poetry coming out. Um, but uh, well, that that's that's for the future. But you heard it here first. It could happen. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. That's wonderful. Well, um, D- Dr. Holly Orway, thank you so much for, for taking the time. And again, the book is Tolkien's Modern Reading. Uh, I, I highly recommend this if you're a fan of Tolkien, if you want a great introduction into just a, a wonderfully Catholic mind as far as uh, the, the breadth and, and, and depth that we're called to engage with our own modern world and uh, to be able to bring the light of the gospel uh, to it. So thank you so much for your work with Word on Fire as well and uh, for being a good Catholic representative over, over at um, Houston Baptist University, <laughs> which I, I think is great, and, uh, and for your work with apologetics. Oh, it's been a pleasure to be on. Thanks for having me. Okay, God bless. And thank you all so much for uh, for joining us today on Catholic in America. Uh, make sure you go to Word on Fire's website and, and, and pick up uh, Dr. Holly Ordway's book. And uh, we'll see you next time. God bless. Mm-hmm.